had to make a prediction about one of the big stories you'll be seeing across the country in 2017, it would be the topic of our episode today. Nationwide heroin and opioid abuse has reached epidemic levels. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently announced that in 2015, heroin-related deaths surpassed gun-related homicides. Journalists across the country have already started scrambling to find new ways to cover the skyrocketing addiction and overdose rates in a way that hasn't been done before in a way that humanizes the situation and makes people sit up and pay attention. We know the horror of this year and the horror of what's probably coming next year are worse than what we dealt with for our 2015 reporting. And so that also obviously gave us a lot of motivation to try to get this right, to try to do the best we can, to tell these stories, generate empathy, uh, hold policymakers and lawmakers accountable, and try to get some things done. Coming up, Kara Tabor talks with Stephen Sterling of New Jersey Advanced Media and Mike Stuka and Pat Beal of the Palm Beach Post about their reporting on the heroin epidemic in New Jersey and Florida, including how they put human faces on the statistics. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Stephen Sterling thought that something seemed off. A couple years ago, he was sifting through data on New Jersey's growing heroin addiction crisis, but wasn't seeing reporting that illustrated just how bad things really were. What I had noticed over the years leading up to it was that, you know, it wasn't really getting a reaction. It didn't seem to be resonating with people. And, you know, I was looking at these statistics that were going up exponentially, whether it be people in treatment or, or overdose deaths, and it seemed like, wow, this should be a lot bigger an issue than it actually seems to be. Stephen is a data reporter for New Jersey Advanced Media. And a big part of that for me personally was that, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I'd gone to rehab a couple of years ago. And while I was there, uh, you know, I went to a place in Connecticut and spent 30 days there. And, you know, you can... You know, I'm obviously there to sort out my own thing, but, you know, I'm still a reporter, and I was hearing all of these incredible stories. And I was 30 at the time, I think, and everybody there was younger than me. You know, maybe 98% of the 100-pet facility at the time I was there was 20 to 25-year-olds. A lot of them were from New Jersey, a lot of them from the surrounding states, but they all had this common threat. They all had these absolutely unbelievable stories of addiction almost all of which were based in either heroin or opiates or both. And I came back from that realizing that this is an aspect of the story that really isn't being told. So we set out to reframe the issue, hopefully, and give people an understanding of not only how significant this is, but how it might touch, likely touches somebody in your own life and you don't even know it. To do that, he knew he'd have to get creative with how he told the story of New Jersey's growing number of heroin addicts through a series of increasingly crazy discussions where we were tossing out ideas and stuff, we sort of settled on that. as like, well, what if you put them all in one place? And I think I had brought up the fact that it would, based on the, the projection I had at that point, it would be the fourth largest city in New Jersey. 
All of this led to Heroin Town, a reporting project that chronicles New Jersey's growing heroin epidemic and frames the crisis in a way that's easy to understand. In this case, that frame is a place, a fictional 128,000-person city filled with very real people and struggles. It's a town with one road in and one road out, with diverse residents coming from all throughout the state. The community has staggering rates of death and disease, but as Stephen writes, Herointown's booming population makes sense to the residents. The same thing that brought them here keeps them here. The final project launched online in December 2015 and has spawned subsequent reporting ever since. Heroin Town didn't come to life overnight. Just figuring out how many people in New Jersey were battling addiction required some heavy lifting. You know, I even surprised myself when we set out to sort of statistically analyze how large of a population this could be. It was surprising to me that it ended up being so large and that this was so expansive. I had known lots of people in my own life through my own recovery that were affected by this, so I had some idea of it, but to really put it in some kind of solid figure was still surprising to me. And by all accounts, it's only gotten worse since then. We're, we're almost a year out from when we published this piece, and all indications are that that trend line is continuing. While addiction is a very human condition, it's often the numbers that help drive home the scale of the problem. Fortunately, there was plenty of data, local, state, and national, for Stephen to pull from. He could look at overdose rates, treatment centers, hospital visits, and emergency room information. New Jersey alone has an online tool called NJ SAMS that tracks the number of people in treatment on a day-to-day -day basis, complete with demographic details information on drug use, and other health data for each individual. But there was a downside. All of this information, it was just kind of scattered around. And in many cases, it was incomplete. That meant Stephen had to be careful about making sweeping statements. We, we have to be careful to say at least before any data that we publish because we only know what we know. We know that there's a universe that we're not covering here. But basically what I did here was to take every database that I could, whether it be emergency room data or treatment data on the state and federal level, overdose data, and sort of started to combine them in ways that I could to, to give a sense of what we do know and what we might not know. A lot of data came from state and national survey estimates, including some on how many people are being turned away from overflowing treatment centers throughout New Jersey. It's problematic to get national overdose figures because every state sort of has a different way of analyzing how they do things. But treatment data, at the very least, is fairly standardized across the board. Uh, even if you're not getting a complete picture, it's as close as you can get. And then there were the treatment centers themselves. Another thing that I, I needed to do and I was glad I was able to do was to actually make connections with treatment centers in New Jersey and get them to pull back the curtain a bit and see, you know, how many people they have on waiting lists and how that had fluctuated over the course of a year or so to really get an understanding of where we're at and how the number of people that we know are treated is really just a small fraction of the people that are out there. Leading up to the publication of Heroin Town, Stephen had done a dozen stories about heroin addiction and had gotten to know the people running treatment facilities. And I had talked to those places during the course of that and, you know, showed that I was trying to do this right and I was trying to be 
open and honest about what I was doing and that I could publish good stories on the piece. Well, you know, if they said something off the record, be protective of what they did not want published. You know, over time, that allowed me to create these relationships with many treatment centers, not all of them. I mean, some of them didn't want their own internal data out there, and I can certainly understand it. It is a business at the end of the day, but just sort of shoe leather reporting in terms of forming those relationships. And over time, they let me see a little more and they let me see a little more. And that was ultimately what allowed me to sort of factor that into my analysis. But even with the data and access to treatment centers, Stephen knew that his reporting wouldn't be exactly perfect. It would have been easy to shrug and say, sorry, but there's just not enough concrete data available. You know, I sort of went into this understanding that it would be imperfect. But I felt comfortable after going through this a bit and understanding that even if we couldn't hit the mark directly, that we had enough data to show and give people a figure that would be shocking and uh, and sort of, you know, humbling to the extent of the problem that we have here in New Jersey, you know, even if we couldn't shoot as high as we wanted to. I don't think we as reporters should be afraid to approach topics that are problematic like that because there's no way to make things better than without reporting on what you can. And, you know, I think readers are, are generous to the extent that you clarify what you do know and what you do not know. It wasn't the sheer number of people that Stephen deemed residents of Heroin Town that stunned him the most. It was the overwhelming number of responses he received from a Google form, one that he had published while reporting. These responses in turn became a critical part of the project. I think that was me coming back from my own rehab experience and saying like, oh man, I'm a reporter and I heard all of these absolutely mind-bending stories that I could never report on because they were in the shell of anonymity that occurred there. And I was like, well, I wonder if people, if we gave them some form of anonymity and allowed them just to put their first names down with the option to contact them, what would happen? And I knew we could do that with a Google form, and I attached it to the first story I did on the topic. It was a bit of a gamble, but hundreds of readers ended up taking advantage of the anonymous outlet to tell their stories. The most affecting thing, I think, was the stories that we collected from people and how forthcoming people were when we put out an open call to have people submit their stories. I didn't really think that that was going to work. The fact that we ended up with 500 stories or nearly 500 stories in a matter of weeks That was initially shocking to me, and that was probably the thing that affected me most because it seemed like people just needed to tell the story. And these are people from all walks of life in New Jersey, uh, age 17 to 79, I believe, more than 200 towns. And it it was all, I mean, it was heartbreaking in a lot of ways to read some of the stories of people that were lost people that were still out there and struggling. There were great stories of recovery in there as well. And a lot of these stories weren't one or two paragraph statements. People were writing 2,000 words at a time on this, you know, sort of open-ended question at the end of the end of the forum. I certainly didn't expect that. You know, not only people that were in addiction, but people that have there were living with people who were addicts, uh, who had been, who had died, who were still in active addiction. You know, uh, that was a tremendous part of the story that I don't think had really been told by a lot of people is that the sort of ripple effect around somebody who is suffering from addiction is pretty significant and sort of opens up the scope of this a lot more. Of the approximately 500 people who filled out the form shortly after the launch, a shocking 85% 
told New Jersey Advanced Media that they'd be willing to be contacted to share more. I found that people were more than willing to open up about it because a lot of people didn't have that outlet in their lives, particularly people that were still struggling with this. They didn't know where to turn and they didn't know how to explain it and they had, uh, a lot of them hadn't really had the opportunity to sort of vocalize what they were going through. I mean, there was a state politician in there who had suffered through addiction and was a couple years in recovery and was elected to office in the state of New Jersey. And then there were stories of, you know, I think the one kid that was in there, he was a 24-year-old chemist in the self-described suburban success story. And he sort of met all of the criteria for what you expected uh, you know, a successful young person in New Jersey to be. He had, you know, a college degree. He had gotten through college with high marks. He was getting paid far more than the, the median salary in New Jersey. And he was going to work as a chemist high every day. It was just this great shame and secret that he had, and he didn't know how to get out of it. It was stories like that where these people in their lives probably have no real idea of what that person is suffering through that affected me most. That really hit me with how large of an issue this could be because you could really have somebody that's sitting next to you who is in all of this pain and suffering as an opioid or, or heroin addict, and you might never know. Since the project was published last December, Stephen has done more reporting on subtopics like the shortage of beds at treatment centers and the use of Narcan, the opioid overdose antidote, throughout New Jersey. At the end of our call, I asked Stephen if he had any advice for reporters wanting to tackle a similar project. All of us as reporters have a myriad of responsibilities at this point and a lot of things to do. And I know that this kind of level of enterprise or investigation can seem impossible sometimes. And if I had asked to work on this exclusively for even three months at a time, you know, it wouldn't have happened. You know, I chipped away at this over the course of a year. We were able to come up with something, you know, really great at the end of it. Next, we're traveling down to Florida to hear how reporters at the Palm Beach Post quite literally put a face to heroin deaths through their ambitious project, Heroin Killer of a Generation. Pat Beal was searching names on Google when she came across photos of a young mother from Texas named Casey McRae. In the photos, McRae was smiling and appeared completely happy. At 20, she died of a heroin overdose, leaving behind a four-year-old daughter. And the more you looked at the photos, the more it became very, very apparent that there was something here that we had not reported out, even though I think we all believed we had reported it out because we had reported anecdotally on deaths. We had been reporting, you know, for a while on the numbers, and the numbers are climbing. Pat is an investigative reporter at the Palm Beach Post, and the name she'd been Googling came from a medical examiner's list of individuals who had overdosed in Palm Beach County in 2015. These are terrible things that are happening, but this just felt different, and so we wanted to do something different. The online searches turned up faces of parents, veterans, 
even drug counselors and a police officer who formerly served in a sheriff's narcotics unit. The pattern didn't fit with the stereotypical image of people who are addicted to heroin. For decades, there had been this perspective that people who were on drugs were horrible, awful criminals without the willpower to quit taking them. And the what we call the addiction model of this is actually a disease and people's brains change and all that has begun to take root. That's Mike Stuka, a data reporter at the Palm Beach Post. So I think there's this growing acceptance among the regular population that these people who are on drugs are actually people. They're not some sort of lesser class of people, criminals. And we decided, based on what Pat created, to start taking another look at them. And eventually it evolved into, let's look at all 216 folks who died last year of these heroin-related overdoses. That ambitious task started with a poorly organized spreadsheet from the medical examiner's office. It included information like the decedent's name, age and residence, as well as police information and all of the drugs found in their body. But it only went through the end of August 2015, and the team wanted to look at the entire year. There were some other problems as well. We found lots of errors in the spreadsheet as we went through, and we added, I think, more than 100 columns before it was done. But that literally was our working point. We put that in Google Docs, Google Sheets, so we could all work on it at the same time. And you could literally pop in there and see six of your colleagues working at the same time you were. The team also used a photo tracker to pair up medical examiner case numbers and other identifiers with photos of the deceased. On top of the data from the medical examiner, there were toxicology materials from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. In the end, there were about 600 documents involved. But then they had a new problem, determining who had died from an actual heroin overdose. One of the things that may not be obvious, but that was a real challenge for us in this, was just determining who was going to be on the list. Because heroin, once it's injected, breaks down very quickly into morphine. So we had talked to the medical examiner, and we knew from talking to our own medical examiner as well as doing research into how this is handled by medical examiners everywhere, that, you know, we would have to look at people who died where the cause of death or one of the drugs at death did not include heroin, but did include morphine. There was another drug that became key to the vetting process. And we also needed to look at fentanyl. And one of the reasons we needed to look at fentanyl is that we knew it was being sold as heroin to unsuspecting users. We knew that fentanyl was also being mixed with heroin. And so you would, for instance, we might see somebody who had morphine and fentanyl in their body. So it was really important with the morphine in particular, that we look individually at all of the available data that we could get on that individual to determine whether he or she fit a profile that we were looking at, which was a user of IV illicit narcotics that was consistent with the opiate epidemic of heroin. You want to give the truest possible description. And, and for us, we found out that would be heroin-related. The team had succeeded in narrowing down their list of people who had died from heroin overdoses in Palm Beach County in 2015. Starting at 316, they worked their way down to a conservative estimate of 216. And they could have reported the story with just that stat. 
unfortunately, there's a good chance that no one would have flinched at that number alone. Other media outlets have been reporting on heroin, and we're well aware of that. But typically what they were doing was they were picking out two or three people as examples of, you know, the growing heroin crisis, and it's a one story, and it doesn't move the needle, it doesn't change anything. First was we needed to show that, you know, the human side of these people, as, as much as we could, tell their stories, show their faces, and we needed to match that up with the enormous scale of this. Then came the discussions of how they'd showed the scale in a human way. Reporters and editors went back and forth on whether to include photos and names, photos with no names, and every combination in between. And, you know, it touched on some really interesting challenges, I think, for us in terms of reporting in that at one point somebody said, well, why don't we just use 50 photos? We're a regional newspaper. We have the resources of a regional newspaper. We're not the Los Angeles Times. And all of us had stories that we had to continue to be researching and doing as this was going on. And 50 faces would have been much, much easier. And couldn't we have gotten our story across? And I think ultimately, no. If we had shown 50 young middle-class white faces and shown them as the faces of a heroin epidemic, there would be people who would flatly not believe us. They would dismiss that out of hand. And so, yeah, I think, I think we had to show all 216. Images of all 216 people were arranged into an online photo gallery. And on one webpage, they're arranged by the month. A brief article accompanied each photo. That meant reporters had to gather information for 216 stories. It's this kind of contradictory thing we were trying to do. We were trying to show the enormity of something using very small stories. So we were trying to do two things simultaneously that were really kind of contradictory. To write those stories, reporters had to track down the next of kin. They were calling people all over the country and even internationally. And similar to what Stephen Sterling experienced in New Jersey, a resounding majority of people were willing to talk. The human toll of this on my coworkers was amazing, but... At the same time, I realized that's nothing compared to what the families were going through. There is a huge human cost here. And these are people's sisters, mothers, daughters, sons, husbands, wives, f- friends. And we wound up talking to a whole bunch of them, uh, my colleagues did. And that pain sometimes was not easy for families to get through. uh, I think one of the hardest things in terms of making the phone calls was just making the commitment to pick up the phone and make the call. You know, for me, that could be really difficult because, I mean, think about what we're doing. We are, you're at home, you get a call from a reporter in another state who says, I would like, who says essentially, I mean, we didn't put it quite as brutally, but who is essentially saying, I would like to talk to you about your dead child who overdosed on a notorious drug. And we are going to be putting the photo and the story and the name in the paper and I mean, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I can't, except that, of course, I could imagine, which is why it was so hard for me to pick up the phone and, and make the call. I swear there were times when I would be on the phone with one of the family members, and they would be dealing with it a lot better than I was. We came to work, we got on the phone, and we cried. And that's what we did day after day, because we were, we were crying with them. But it looks like the toll might get worse before it gets better. There's an element of horror here that we haven't discussed. We're talking about the 216 people who lost their lives to heroin-related overdoses in 2015. We knew all along this has been building. 
we know 2016 is much, much worse, not just in the number of deaths and how many lives, obviously, that's affected and how many survivors there are, but we're seeing new drugs out there. For example, I believe the medical examiner said there's been 18 carfentanil deaths since July. Carfentanil is an elephant tranquilizer. Nobody thought humans would be dumb enough to sell this to other humans so they would use it and get high. And the thing is so strong, it's almost undetectable at lethal levels. So that 18 number might even be higher. We don't know. The print and online packages came out in late November. And since then, there's been positive response from county commissioners, mayors, sheriffs, and medical examiners. Families have gotten in touch as well. And overall, they've given the team good feedback. Pat, Mike, and their colleagues are pleased with the responses that the project has gotten so far. Now they're waiting to see if and when changes actually come. The whole reporting experience left a mark on the team. What got me was I I thought I was done with the tears. And I had taken some proofs of the printed page home to read because I hadn't seen the stories as they were being drafted. And I wind up reading one of Pat's stories, introducing this, and then it goes into just a month after 2015 ended, an 18-year-old girl died. Maggie. And I'm, I'm crying on the sofa as my son is sitting next to me watching Octonauts on, I think it was a Thursday or Friday morning before I take him to daycare. And I'm trying not to let him know because... Here's this innocent kid. And I'm also thinking, here's a kid who's the same age as the children of some of the people we had written about. And I, I think as a you know, every reporter is human. And it would take a very special, horrible person not to find a connection with some of these people in here. There are lots and lots of ways to have to build empathy, to say, this person could have been my brother, this person could have been my son, this person could have been my mother. And in my case, actually, it was this person could have been me. Because most of my life, I've had chronic back pain. Had I gotten a different prescription in 1993, maybe things would have been different. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the names and faces and and I think so I think what sticks with me is is really, you know, what sticks with Mike is that the names and the faces. We know them so well now. You know, we really do. And I think that's the part that stays with me. I think it's going to stay with all of us who worked on them for a long time. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head over to ire.org podcast to browse our archives. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Kara Tabor reported this episode. Blake Nelson draws our episode artwork, and Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that over there. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.